Hey everyone, my name is Christian, and welcome back to Throughline, the podcast where we try to find the concept in non-concept albums. It's the new year, and with a new year, it's always a good time to try new things, make new resolutions, maybe fail at some and succeed at others, and take new risks, get out of our comfort zone a little, and make new worthwhile memories. Or maybe later, because for now, our situation hasn't changed. We still have the same people to thank and the same content to make. First, this podcast is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the home of the world's first HD podcast, and your premier source for entertainment-related podcasts that span the range from super broad and explorative to incredibly niche and detailed. Rock history as a whole to literally just the band Kiss, if you're so inclined. They have an app, a website, but they're also everywhere else. Super convenient. Second, Throughline would never have existed without our parent podcast, co-hosted by my parent, Matthew, and his friend Kyle, Audio Judo. If you ever wanted an in-depth look into the history of an album, an exploration of its themes and ideas song by song, and get a glimpse into why an album speaks to someone through personal anecdotes, Audio Judo is your place of music discovery. They can be found wherever podcasts are podcast and are approaching their 100th episode, so get searching. Anyway, today we're ringing in the new year by talking about a band that is from a long time ago. How creative. It's a band that I've always found a bit goofy, but I think that's more just how I feel about the genre and time period as a whole. In all actuality, it's a monster of an album and band, and honestly, a lot better than I gave it credit for. It's Arrival by ABBA. Now, for all you folks racking your brain at home, it's the one with Dancing Queen. Their absolute biggest song. If I were to ever cover a disco band or album at any point, I likely would never have been able to avoid this one. Arrival itself is an interesting beast in its own right, however, spanning quite a few mega hits for the band. Six of the ten songs on this album showing up in the mega musical hit Mamma Mia or its movie or its movie sequel. It was their fourth studio album coming directly in the middle of an incredibly prolific time for the band that saw them release eight albums in eight years. Having just come off the relatively large success of Waterloo and their self-titled in the previous two years, they were poised to break big with this album. And, well, they did. A holy pop and disco album, it shot to number one in the UK, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, Australia, Denmark, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, and even hit 20 in the US. This album turned them into global superstars, yielding at least a grand total of over 10 million records sold worldwide for this album alone, going platinum or gold in quite a few countries. It even had a bit of critical success, with many reviews placing it at or above the 3.5 out of 5 score rank, a pretty decent score for a pop album. Even upon its re-releases, it had some minor chart success, showing its longevity more and more over time. Now, if you don't know who ABBA is, they're a bit of a curious mix in their own right. Despite being entirely Swedish, the vast majority of their released catalog, if not all of it, is entirely in English. They rose to the beginnings of their prominence when one of their early songs, Waterloo, won the 1974 Eurovision Song Contest, a yearly international songwriting competition that continues to see massive viewership year after year, in the realm of like nine figures every single year. With so much pressure, it's a massive boon to win each year. This success catapulted them into the spotlight to showcase their abilities and with how often they put records 
out following this win, they continued their growth into becoming one of the biggest bands of the 1970s and arguably one of the biggest bands of all time. Selling in the range of around 300 to 400 million records total, they are easily the best-selling Swedish band of all time and had eight consecutive number one albums in the UK, which prior to their comeback album is literally all eight of their albums. They also made history as the only band from a non-English-speaking country to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Columbus, Ohio in 2010. However, despite their massive success due to prior fatigue with touring and some personal reservations in some of the members, the band really only performed in a little over a hundred shows over the course of their career, instead finding most of their success and engagement through the constant release of new music, until the band fizzled out in 1982. However, they've recently released a new album and are in a current residency in London, ABBA Voyage, which still continues through November of 2023 and possibly even beyond. So see them and their funky digital avatars if you can. Now, with all of that out of the way and the introduction to a band most of you probably didn't need an introduction on anyway finished, it's time to stop doing and get into it. With this week's album and the first of 2023, it's Arrival by ABBA. So cards on the table, I've never been a huge fan of ABBA, and after careful consideration, I've found that there's not really a good reason for that. Now it's possible that the reason may be connected to my general dislike of the Mamma Mia movies, and because ABBA songs make up the vast majority of music and story in those films, I've had no desire to search them out as a result. Now my dislike of the Mamma Mia movies may be flawed in and of itself, as a blanket believed dislike of music musicals and or the plaster beige setting of the film may not be worthwhile reasons to harbor such disdain. And the dislike is even likely exaggerated by my belief that disco is generally a bit goofier than I'd like, and specifically, Dancing Queen is much like those barnstormer songs that I tend to avoid in my own music on principle, i.e. Don't Stop Believing, Living on a Prayer, Sweet Caroline, you know the type. But all of this kind of culminates into two central takeaways right here at the beginning. One, it's generally a good idea to reevaluate how you feel about things from time to time and address the underlying reasons for your like or dislike to see if they continue to hold merit or if you're merely choosing to enjoy or avoid something purely on spite or perceived coolness. And two, sometimes your brain is far more instinctual and primitive than we'd all care to admit and sometimes you just don't like things because you just don't like them. And that, on its surface, should not be cause for ridicule from others. Yes or no are as good of answers as any, and function as complete sentences in their own right, with no further elaboration required. The only instance that this isn't true, of course, is in the event that these likes or dislikes lead to decisions or laws or situations that could cause harm to others, especially innocent others. But all of this as a preamble to be upfront about this album and my feelings about it in this breakdown with the disclaimer that, despite finding more appreciation for ABBA and some of their hits that I've regarded 
unfavorably in the past, and especially their musicality, I still don't like them that much, or this album. But the hope here is that you are going to be the exception to that, that maybe this episode can help bring you more appreciation for this absolutely massive mega hit of a band, and even possibly add them to your musical rotation. As it so turns out, I just might not be joining you. So what's the deal with this album then? Was there a point to all of that? Some connection to the content? Well, kind of. One of the key parts of that discussion was how, either through re-evaluation or the endless march of time, it's possible that you will encounter things in the future that you felt one way about and may end up growing to change that opinion. And in ABBA's album Arrival, we are invited on a journey of one individual's exploration of their connection to life, love, and themselves set over three separate stages in their life. It's another thirds album, and in true throughline fashion, we're escalating what should be a lighthearted disco album out of the mid-70s and turning it into a tragedy. But unlike typical throughline, this album seems to end as a tragedy, never quite fully resolving. Most of the albums we've covered in the past present all of the issues in the front half, whether they be one story, a collection, or a series of interconnected ideas and plights. Across the back half, the album sows the seeds of hope or mends the tears from before and leads to a moralistic message to pull at the end. Not here. We'll get to what the ending actually does mean as we explore the track by track, but first, I'm sure you're all wondering how I arrived at all of that theory crafting. How can a Mamma Mia album be tragic? How can an album with this song be tragic? It's so joyful, it never ceases to make its ecstatic listeners, its ecstatic fans, want to frolic through an old villa barefoot with flowing clothes and hair. Tone nailed. But if we look carefully at lyrics throughout the album, we're presented with an interesting evolution. We move from lines like having the time of your life to memories, good days, bad days, they'll be with me always, to finally, believe me, it's better to forget me. Literally, over the course of the album, Memory and experience move from a thing you'll cherish to a thing you respect though it be mixed to a thing you'd rather not even know happened. Tonally, we can continue to play around with these three separate sentiments and their obvious evolution and work them around specific sections of the album that continue these trends. And for ease of reference, I've named them three three-song sections that help collect the story into essentially a three-act structure. At the front, we have When I Kiss the Teacher, Dan Dancing Queen and My Love My Life in the Young Love chapter. Then we move to Dum Dum Diddle, Knowing Me, Knowing You, and Money 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 in the Unfulfillment section. And finally, we finish at That's Me, Why Did It Have to Be Me, and Tiger in the Lost Hope section. Young Love, Unfulfillment, Lost Hope. 
it's a pretty sorry sight. But for an added bonus of reinforcement on this theory, let's quickly synopsize the third song of each category to really hammer home these delineations. My Love, My Life ends the first chapter Young Love and seems to be about an amiable but still heartbreaking breakup for reasons that are either beyond their control or as a result of feeling like they understand where the relationship is headed. The lead singer, the protagonist in this case, is still mad Badly in love, but knows it's over, and likely has some understanding that she has time to figure out love. Still holding on to those memories tightly, though, as one does with their first lost love. Money, Money, Money ends the second chapter, Unfulfillment, and is a stark change to everything that came before it. I mean, just take a listen. is the romantic underpinning of much of the rest of the album. Instead, replaced by the protagonist looking for her financial and subsequently her romantic freedom. She had been trying to play the wife who marries well off, but there's a spark of dejection in the song that she no longer feels worthy of being that trophy wife. Upset by this, even though the thought of being merely a prize she feels is sad too. And finally, Tiger ends the third chapter Lost Hope, whereas the main character acts like she is on the hunt, searching for her next score, devoid of romance and love, the connection now merely a game to be captured and won, consumed for a brief point before returning back to the hunting grounds. These are pretty starkly related to the category title I gave them, and also successfully lead the story from one section to another, functioning as transitory pieces in addition to being a reasonable anchor position in their own right. But as you may have noticed, three sections of three songs does not equal 10 songs, the actual length of the album when it released. So we're missing one, and not just any one, the final one, and not just any final one, the namesake of the album, Arrival. Okay, so then shouldn't this one need to fit into the final section, Lost Hope? Well, not necessarily. Instead, it functions more like an epilogue, but a curious one at that. Why do I say this? Well, just take a listen. final song on the album, the namesake of the album, is an instrumental with some vocalizations. That's weird. A playout song, and one that is a fair bit brighter than the final section as a whole. Now, I do have a theory for this, but I think it prudent now to instead look back on everything we've said so far, find the foundation, and pave the road forward to working out the actual minutia of this tragedy that goes from good to middling to bad. So, here we are then, at an attempt at a through line. One that describes an album of a character who struggles to find their place within love and seems to see herself give up. Life not the easy fairy tale that it felt like when they were young. An album that starts grand and joyous and slowly turns more thoughtful and darker, retaining the bounciness of the music but twisting it into crude facsimiles of what it had been or satirical looks at other genre music that belie their point. A much more textural and complex album than I was expecting it's now time to really unravel this thread and perhaps find a coherent, non-musical story here in ABBA's fourth studio album, with song one, of course, When I Kissed the Teacher. Everybody scream, 
So um, right off the bat, this was a different time. A song like this probably couldn't be made right now because the implication within the lyrics has evolved to a much more dangerous and unfortunately realistically illuminating conversation. But in the context of the album and for the time, we do have the benefit of finding an entirely alternate read here. At first glance, this song feels very creepy. The teacher smiled when she kissed him. Now, to be fair, the blocking of the scene seems to mostly suggest it was a peck on the cheek as he was hunched over her desk trying to explain the laws of geometry, more than likely from the side. This is a much more innocent version of the scene, and it's likely the smile has less to do in this situation with the teacher liking what happened, and more has to do with being embarrassed, evident by him blushing and further supported by him being quote-unquote petrified. Now obviously there's no way to know, especially considering we didn't get his perspective and he's also a fictional character. But more importantly, that's not even the part of the song that we should even be focusing on. The teacher's reaction has very little to do with the narrative of the album. Instead, her reaction to the event is far more telling. Now, first of all, the tone of the song is incredibly bouncy, almost childish in nature, with the singer's tones somewhat similar to the little asides girls giggle to each other in class, in the hallways or elsewhere on campus. There's a gentle, playful innocence to the whole charade that's then further colored by the chorus of the song. One of these days, I'm going to tell him I dream of him every night. It is not unlikely, and actually something I can personally attest to either from my own experience or Roy Proxy, is fairly common that many children's first real crush is an authority figure of some kind in their life. And because they see a wide variety of teachers and see so much of those teachers throughout their school days, odds are a student may have one of their first real crushes on a teacher. Now, it is absolutely a bit of a parasocial relationship. Teachers, just as much as any customer service or personal service worker, will put on a personality slash work facade during their time on the clock. No matter how much they care about their students and their success, there is a very small chance that that person is acting exactly the same way at work as they do at home. As a result, these crushes are founded on limited information, a power imbalance that sees the student only witness the fact that the teacher knows a lot more than them and seems a lot more mature than their peers. In a way then, a student's first real crush is built on fantasy and an inflated expectation of what they are likely to experience with their actual peers. Now, this is a good thing in part because it likely builds a view of love that sees them come to expect a certain level of care and respect and maturity, which are all good things to have in a partner, but it also opens a curious exploration of unrealistic expectations as well. It's a complicated place to be. But this innocent playfulness, essentially fantasizing or role-playing a relationship with a stable person, does seem to instill the lead protagonist with a sense of confidence and joyfulness that sees them be open to the idea of love and fun, especially in the time of their youth. So we explore this bright youth in one of the sparkliest songs of the 70s, Dancing Queen.
Having grown out of the crush, more than likely unreciprocated by the teacher, thank God, she is instead turning that energy into exploring what a relationship would fully mean to her, keeping her options open and experimenting. As she says in verse 1, you come to look for a king, anybody could be that guy. There's an abundance of hope here, or possibly just the invincible naive belief in one's own importance, and it rather effectively takes the listener into this character's state of mind, immersing the listener in a way that will pay off as the story progresses. It's effervescent in its tone, to the point where it's almost festive, a joyous celebration of youth and fun and the carefree feeling you have when you're young and have it easy. No responsibilities, no requirements, few consequences, just dancing with whoever catches your fancy and moving on to the next little fling. Leave him burning and then you're gone. It's also one of the longest songs on the album, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, but as everyone's youth eventually is remembered, it all comes to an end faster than you'd like, and nearly everyone at some point will experience their first heartbreak, the end of their first true love, and we can see the character go through this in the next song, My Love, My Life. Immediately here, we enter into a brand new tonal space. Whereas before we had disco, this song is much more cinematic, honestly kind of sounding a little bit like sections of the Interstellar soundtrack, entering into a strange position between melodramatic and genuine. The song begins incredibly somber and longing, opening with the lyrics, now we'll go our separate ways, never again we too. Pretty obviously in a situation where the protagonist doesn't necessarily want this to be happening, but the song refuses to remain in this depressive state, as the beginning of the chorus and subsequently the rest of the song in its entirety bring some sugar to the music with a much more major key, though still with a tint of somberness. In fact, the second verse of the song that sees the singer talk about this being her longest day, knowing that maybe tonight we're through, which is still very much a sad sentiment, this second verse sounds a lot brighter than the first because of the continuation of some of the more twinkling instrumentation from the chorus rather than just the sad strings from the beginning. Take a listen to this change. this culminates still in this sound that wouldn't be out of place in a coming-of-age story. Sonically, a lot like something that would be played in a bittersweet slow dance section at the end, or near the end, of the film that sees the two love interests come to terms with the fact that they're likely to go to different schools and it would be better to break up, being thankful for the time they had together and sad for the time they won't get in the future. It really captures that sickly sweetness, the intense goofy fondness you'll always carry for that first 
first love that you lost, longing more for the innocence and carelessness of that age than possibly even the relationship itself. We even get kind of a glimpse into this song as a memory song, with the line, like an image passing by at the start of the chorus, or was it a dream, a lie, later within, hints toward the fleeting nature of the past and memory. And just as much as time marches in real life, so too does it in this story, as we jump from the protagonist coming out of high school into the burden of adulthood, and a new relationship with a new set of challenges in Dum Dum Diddle. There are really vague hints to a new sound here, as we finally exit the young love chapter of the album and turn page one in the unfulfillment section. That new sound feels a bit more synth-focused here, a new sonic plane that feels a bit more artificial. Thematically, every song prior to this one has had some hope or brightness to its exploration of love, from goofy unrealistic crushes to playful flings to the bittersweet goodbye of a doomed but loving first love, we now get the protagonist in a romance that sees no romance. The love interest instead so focused on their craft or passion, here depicted as the violin, that they almost completely ignore their relationship. Here, the protagonist is essentially wishing to be the object of his desire, to get any amount of attention, to be your fiddle, to be so near you and not just hear you. It's a bit of a goofy idea, and it's likely meant to be, as at this stage, the protagonist is downplaying their desire, essentially laughing it off because she wants to be supportive. She notices that they're only smiling when you play your violin, a touch to the possibility that they may even be depressed, this bringing one of the only salves to their condition. It's hard to be in a situation where your partner is attempting to dump all of themselves into a passion or drive to be successful, because in the long run, there's the possibility of something greater for both of you. However, in these instances, you also neglect what's happening to you in the present, meaning there's a higher risk for an unfulfilling life looking back if putting all of your eggs into that craft ends up leading nowhere, having wasted all of that time that you could have spent with the ones you love, building memories that will only continue to gain status as currency as you get closer to the end. She's obviously supportive. I mean, just take a listen to verse one. She claims that you improve every time you play, but ultimately, there's a limit to how much support someone can give from little to no gain to themselves. And that limit just so happens to be reached in the following song, Knowing Me, Knowing You. the second breakup song on the album, this song is much darker in subject matter, a lot less optimistic in understanding than My Love, My Life. Obviously, as we talked about a bit before, there's still an ounce of good that they will hold on to, talked about in verse 2. The memories, good days, bad days, they'll be with me always. But that's a pretty big focus change from My Love, My Life, in that she is now pointing out that there were bad days, there were things that went wrong, and she will be living with those 
memories as well, rather than the perfect ideal thing that she had before. And the sentiment upon leaving may still be bittersweet, but it's less about being upset by the way things probably would have gone if they didn't split up. Instead, it's more about being upset that things couldn't have gone better. Tears in her eyes about the state that it ended up in. Okay, well, that doesn't explain why this song is so poppy. Yes, there's some sad guitar solo bits, and the singers tend to swing down on certain lyrical phrases rather than up, signaling a bit of a more downtrodden idea, but it's a fairly driving song. Very little in terms of pause or rest or thoughtfulness. In fact, it's actually kind of fun, especially with the little vocal echoes in the chorus. Well, I think it's important to consider then one key detail that changed from My Love, My Life to this song. Here, she is the one doing the breaking up. Breaking up is never easy, but I have to go. Rather than letting go of a love that she wanted to cling to, she's on the other side, doing almost exactly what is described as what her love interest does in My Love, My Life, making the mature decision to end the relationship before it ends up derailing because of circumstances on the horizon. And as a result of this tonal change, she's given a bit more power here. She's still in the bittersweet situation, but more on the sweet side, because this is a decision that she feels will be better for both of them, but likely at least a little bit more for her. And so she takes that empowerment and moves out of the first half of the album more independent into both the last song of the unfulfillment section and into the first song of the back half. Money, money, money. Oh, this song is so not joyful. It's certainly fun, but it's incredibly minor for this album so far that's had its ups and downs, yet has still remained hopeful. This sound is industrial and artificial. Even the piano and keyboard sound tinny and electronic. At some point between the last song and this one, that optimism, that hope for a better future following the end of an unfulfilling relationship seems to have waned and disappeared. Interestingly, and perhaps the start of the true tragedy of the album, the character is now searching for someone successful, someone who can support her, but she feels that she is now at the point where that kind of thing may be a lost cause. If he happens to be free, I bet he wouldn't fancy me. And the tragic part of that is that she kind of almost had that with the love interest from Dum Dum Diddle, the person who was passionately pursuing some goal, the kind that could have gotten him rich, or at least satisfied and comfortable maybe, yet her impatience got the best of her, only to monkey's paw back around and force her to want the things she gave up. There's a freneticism here, the claws of hopelessness starting to unsheath and hook into her as she desperately tries to find a path forward.
she even throws out this idea of winning the lottery as a way to escape this predicament, but quickly comes to the sobering thought at the end of this bridge that my life will never be the same. As an aside that win or lose in this lottery of money or love or whatever, her life will fundamentally need to change, either becoming poor or unfulfilled or some other non-ideal thing, or become rich or fulfilled or in love. There's no way to tell, and she feels like she has very little control over it. And so, we move into the final chapter of the album, the continuation and escalation of this tragedy in the first song of the Lost Hope section, That's Me. This is a very sobering song. Following her desperation and downfall in Money, 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 she's definitely seeming worse for wear here. Any confidence she may have had in herself before has been dashed. Starting the song roughly with the lines, Are you sure you want to hear more? What if I ain't worth the while? Not the style you'd be looking for. At the beginning of her first interaction with someone new, she's already pondering whether or not she's got the longevity to be interesting or worthy enough to be loved. Finishing each one of these stanzas with the phrase, I'm Carrie, not the kind of girl you'd marry. By this point, Carrie, the book by Stephen King, had been out for about a year or two, so it's not unlikely that the figure they're referencing in this part of the song is that character here, a tragic character in her own right, a high schooler so battered and bruised by home situations and stray indoctrination and bullying that she blows her lid and murders, essentially, an entire town. The protagonist of the album is basically calling herself crazy and or unstable here, someone definitely definitely not worth that love in her eyes. But that's interesting. A high school character. The protagonist's high school experience from what we've gathered has been pretty wonderful. Look back on fondly with those dulcet tones that coat the section. But let's look quickly at the tone of this song. Bright fun, driving again. There's even a section at the end of the song that claims that she still has a chance. I'll find it in the end if I keep on searching. There are the last few faint shreds of hope in finding a love worthwhile. A far cry from Money, Money, Money and some of the other more depressive songs. In that proclamation that she herself isn't marriage material, highlighting that lyrically the song is troublesome, despite and in spite of the bounciness of the music. In fact, it's taking the memory of her joy from childhood and twisting it, tainting her past just as much as her present has been, and setting the stage for the story to take even sharper pathways down. And our first look at that further decline is present in the following song, Why Did It Have To Be Me? Again, it's fairly bouncy, despite some rather negative lyrical ideas, underscoring a level of disconnect that the protagonist is learning to grow as a coping mechanism against her growing tragedy in love and life. One of the most glaring things to address in the song at the front, however, is the fact that we have an entirely different lyricist at the beginning. Now, obviously, the lead singers on each song have been switching back and forth between the two main female vocalists in the band, but their voices are similar enough to not necessarily 
necessarily be worthy of note here. However, this is a guy, a male singer. Other than some vocal flourishes, this is brand new for this album to this point. And the song even starts with him talking about feeling used by the protagonist looking for a banal connection, a fling rather than a true romance. In response, the protagonist sings about their loneliness, just needing a quick little nothing to pick their spirits up, going so far as to say that she's not even worth his time, that it would be better to forget her. There's a lot of dark mirroring here to Dancing Queen, where the protagonist was young and explorative, trying out a bunch of different guys as flings or dance partners or whatever, but with a joyfulness and energy that added to her strength and confidence, rather than diminished it as here. Here, in the part of her life where meaning and memory grows more important, she's still toying around. So desperate to not be toyed with herself, as she had been believing to have happened to her in the past, and even denounced in the previous song That's Me with the line, I'm not a man's toy, I'll never be, so desperate for her own power that she turns that around on these flings. These men she finds to placate her depressive swings, and treats them as toys in the game that you play, as mentioned by the male vocalist in this song. She ultimately gets the final say in the song, having sung the same chorus twice, possibly to two different men, expressing different feelings of frustration or even exploitation, although not aggressively, but that final say is that it would be best for them to just forget her. As we talked about before, she has now moved from joyful memories, only to remembering the good and bad, to now not wanting to remember at all, even refusing others the chance to remember her, wanting to be forgotten about. And this arc finally bottoms out in the final lyrical song on the album, Tiger. Another darker song similar in tone to Money, Money, Money. There's an operatic quality to it, an almost Cruella de Vil viciousness to the song's timbre, full of fangs and dripping with a hint of menace. There's no hope or happiness left here, just someone looking to fill a hole of some kind and hunting their prey, fling and forget, moving on in an instant. There's a feeling of a lost sense of humanity, the singer referring to themselves almost exclusively in animalistic or predatory language. People who fear me never come near me. I am behind you, I always find you. Never walk alone after midnight. Yellow eyes. And if we abstract the idea out a little bit, we get an interesting parallel to a cat-like idea already present in our vocabulary, and helps cement this character as having aged throughout the story, from the young and sweet 17 to now. Tigers are, for all intents and purposes, big cats. What other big cats exist out there in the world? Lions? Leopards? Cheetahs? And, well, cougars. For the uninitiated or blindly innocent, cougar is a bit of a derogatory, but possibly being reclaimed, term used to describe older women who are attracted to and actively search out relations with younger men, typically 20-somethings. So then, what would a tiger in this case be if not just a more aggressive or threatening cougar? The character has given up their search for love and fulfillment to instead search for momentary satisfaction and selfish conquest. Now this isn't in and of itself a tragic way to live. Some people find fulfillment from these endeavors, and by no means is 
uses this way to say that self-proclaimed cougars or others who delight in sexual satisfaction are wrong for their lifestyle. But the tragedy comes from what we knew about the character's ambitions and how those crumbled around them as bad decisions, bad relationships, and a loss of hope ultimately led them into a version of themselves that was not what they wanted to be at the end. And this is basically where we leave the character. Without any more lyrical songs or lyrics at all, we are, in the end, left with the character cementing her fate in an almost hysterical shout at the end of the song. A bit of a final tragic death now. I am the tiger. So what else is there really left? Well, the namesake of the album, the epilogue, Arrival. A three-minute growth of a fairly light and almost Christmas-slash-religious riff that builds from a tiny synth to this massive chorus of voices singing along. Now, stay with me here, as what this feels like to me is the death of the character, and subsequently, her ascent into heaven, their arrival into the end. It's a bit on the nose and maybe a tad melodramatic, but there's a nice tie into the storyline here. And at least the smallest bit of resolution to the album as a whole, not entirely ending on the tragic note from Tiger. These vocalizations sound vaguely similar to the choral singing in Dancing Queen. Take a listen. It's a soft connection, but I believe there is one. In the end, after everything, the thing that greets her memory, her life flashing before her eyes, if you will, is that period where she was the happiest, the most carefree, the most living in the moment and truly experiencing life. As it turns out, the first section, the one where she had that joy, her childhood, is the longest section of the album, taking up 35% of the album if you remove the epilogue. It's close, but it's clearly the largest. The second section taking up 33% and the third taking up the remaining 32. Those memories were her most revered, and as her life became worse, those worst sections were granted less of her thoughts. And so, we finally reached the end of the album, one that describes a story about someone with stars in their eyes, moving out of high school and losing their first love, but with a hope for the future that is quickly met with the reality of chance, and the slow disintegration of what they believed was the path forward for themselves before finally resigning to a version of life that was geared toward momentary satisfaction at the final loss of their hope. One that sees those periods of joy and innocence, the ones that valued living in the moment and taking your opportunities and cherishing that which was wonderful as the most important. But just as much as living in the moment is important, it will only be remembered as fulfilling if those moments are cared for rather than abused for quick satisfaction. It's a cautionary tale about focusing on the future while forgetting to learn from and respect the past that has the possibility to lead to your present being mindless and selfish hurting others for your own gain, and refusing yourself love because you've grown to believe that right now you're not worth it, and as such, you won't be worth it in the long run. In the end, all we will ever be to ourselves is our memories. So it's not only wise, but imperative that we search for any way we can to make those memories not fleeting, but effervescent, permanent, and loving.
stick around after the break for a conversation with special guest Haley about the album. Christian here. Yes, it's still through line. You haven't been bamboozled, but where's the little sound thingy? Where's the conversation, the juicy dialogue? Don't worry, I have it queued up, my fingers hovering over the button, or, well, my cursor is ready to drag it in when I edit this together later. But before all of the conversing hullabaloo, I finally got a taste of every podcaster's greatest opportunity. A promo code. And also, I guess, the ability to talk about a product they're actually excited about. Or, well, it's both a service and a product. One of the biggest problems that I have with putting together this whole throughline package is knowing how to give the people what they want. Which musicians to cover, how funny I should be, if I should start a TikTok. But one thing that the people often want from a business or project or property they're passionate about is merch. And what better way to personalize your merch than with stickers? Sticker Mountain is an online experience that is dedicated to delivering you the best stickers and labels so that you can sell your products, grow your business, and focus on your passions. Simple interactive interfaces, competitive prices, and a support team that has the same passion and attention to detail as if they were right down the road from you come together into a package that's damn near impossible to beat. With tons of material options and bulk discounts on bigger orders, it's something that even I can't resist, and frankly, I'm a bit of an analysis nerd if you couldn't tell yet. Their color matching is a highlight and something they pride themselves on, and for good reason. At Sticker Mountain, you'll find everything you need to get the product labels, merch stickers, and more onto your booths, into your stores, and into the hands of your customers. And by listening to this podcast, you've unlocked a special reward. For a limited time, you can use the code THROUGHLINE2022, all lowercase, to get 10% off your next order at StickerMountain.com. Make the most of it. Stock up. I can personally attest to the quality and care that goes into each order, and I'm confident you'll be excited you looked them up too. Go see what they have at StickerMountain.com and use the code THROUGHLINE2022 for that lovely, lovely discount. Now, for all y'all that stuck around, time to hit that funny little sound button. Hey everyone, welcome back to Throughline. We just got done going over the breakdown of Arrival by ABBA, and now we're going to have a quick conversation about things that the band has said, things that some fans have said, reviews, just a overall look at the album's creation and kind of what the meaning of it is and some of the things that I wanted to talk about or was brought up in my research of the album. And today I have a special guest, a guest that we had on the podcast 15 episodes ago, so more than half a year ago. It is my friend and Lord fan and also Ava fan, Haley. Uh, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for joining me again. I was super excited to talk to you specifically about this band and this album because <laughs> I know that you have a special place in your heart for Mamma Mia. <laughs> I do. I'm pretty sure when you asked me to do this, I said that my qualifications are exclusively that I can recite pretty much every word in the two movies. Uh, <laughs> Both I have movies? done some research. Well, <laughs> close to. <laughs> I think that the second one is almost more fun, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> 
How did you get into the band in general? Was it through the movie? So actually my first experience with ABBA, my mother was my sister's Girl Scout troop leader when we were kids. Okay. And the Girl Scout in the area had a an international day and mm-hmm. each troop was assigned a country and they had to put together a performance based on the country that they were assigned. And my sister's troop was assigned Sweden and my mom put 15 little seven-year-olds in blonde bob wigs and had them perform ABBA in front of everybody else. And none of these kids knew what they were doing or who this band was or anything culturally related to it. But that was the first time that I heard the band and it kind of stuck with me since then. This band has a really incredible power to just surge back into popularity like every 10 years. I don't know that it's ever really left. It's right. iconic. It has been one of the most prevailing pop bands of all time. Yeah. And they just have a really good sense of timing. Like, obviously, they don't need the help to come back or stick around. But it seems like every 10 years or so, there is something that sparks their comeback. You had the original musical, I think in the 90s. I believe you're correct. It was originally when it was made. So they kind of dissolved as a band in the 80s and then had the musical come out or so in the 90s. And then you had the smash hit movie musical version of the stage play. And then you had the sequel that came out 10 years later. And then now they're doing like a whole residency thing in London with virtual avatars. So they're themselves always coming back every 10 years or so into like the forefront of popularity. Right. I think that each one of those has allowed them to bring themselves to a new audience. Mm -hmm. And this current virtual tour that they're doing is really interesting because obviously it's a throwback. It's a nostalgia thing for a bunch of people. But it's also they've taken to advertising it via TikTok Mm -hmm. and have created a brand new group of people who appreciate them and listen to them and are seeing their work through silly little TikTok videos that they're making, which is fascinating. They're really able to just claw their way into the hearts of brand new groups consistently. Yeah, they've always been on the forefront of showmanship. That dates back all the way to their Eurovision days. They were attempting to get into winning Eurovision for a number of years. They came in third, I think, in 1972 or something like that. And then 1974, they came in first with Waterloo. And Eurovision's massive. And so ever since then, they just like keep working themselves into new mediums and exploring new ideas. And then you have people that are diehard fans of theirs because because their sound is so iconic that they introduce them themselves. It's absolutely prolific. There's nobody else doing what they're doing. Yeah. It's fascinating. Especially considering they've put out one album in the last 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that the the concept of a virtual concert yeah. kind of put me off at first when I was hearing about it. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, that seems like a little bit of a cop-out. But after doing more research and learning more about the band and why they disbanded and all of that, and some of the drama surrounding surrounding their original touring. Yeah. I think that it actually incredibly, it's the only way that I think that they would be able to tour again. Mm-hmm. I'm going to absolutely butcher name, but. Oh, I didn't even try. <laughs> I didn't even try <laughs> earlier. I just said it was made up of four members. <laughs> 
So one of their singers, Agneta, I think that's somewhat close. Okay. She suffered from severe anxiety surrounding touring and the idea of fame that kind of came with it and the fans and all of the stuff that came with success. And Mm -hmm. she really didn't think that it was fair that in order to be successful, she had to go through all of this. Right. I mean, that's a question. An interesting question is, is it fair that you have to do that? How can you be successful without those fans? Right. I would almost argue that they didn't even really do it at all. They were successful without touring. I look at bands all the time that, oh, they've done 400 shows. They've done 500 shows internationally over the course of their career. I couldn't find any more than like 100, 120 over those like eight super prolific years that they had. They really were just coasting on how successful their music was. And that was largely due to the fact that every single time it's going to be like this. Agneta really did not want to tour. Yeah. I mean, the band is made up of two couples, at least in the beginning, both of whom had children. But Agneta and Bjorn had kids that were young and were like under four years old. And every time she had to leave them, it created this sense of failure in her mind. And she really pushed to do as few concerts and as little traveling as possible. Right. So it's mind blowing that they were able to, despite all of that, reach the levels that they did. Yeah. And I had read that Bjorn and Benny, the two guys of the band, had a band before ABBA. And in that band itself, they had played over a thousand shows. So I'm sure that at some point you're like, yeah, this kind of sucks. We've done this so much. (laughs) (laughs) Right. How do you, I can only imagine. You can hear that so explicitly in the lyrics of songs like Super Trooper. Mm. She says, they say, facing 20,000 of your fans, how could anyone be so lonely? I mean, that's wildly tragic, but is that not what being a successful musician is? Yeah. Like, is that not the trade-off that you're making to go on tour? You can't have a successful music career without your fans. Yeah, I'm sure part of it is, we're going to talk about Arrival in a second here, but I explored (laughs) a little bit about the idea of parasocial relationships in When I Kiss the Teacher, the first song of this album. And there is a whole idea of these parasocial relationships, a relationship that is kind of one-sided because you only get access to a certain part of another person's personality as a result of them being an entertainer or a teacher or something like that. So people build these relationships on false impressions of what person or how that person might react to them. And so I can understand that if you're not necessarily equipped to deal with or don't even want to deal with people projecting some version of what they believe you are onto yourself and pretending that they know that person is probably a difficult thing to handle. Neil Peart from the band Rush was pretty well known for like not wanting to interact with fans because they didn't know him. He's like, I don't know who you are. Right. This isn't a normal relationship you and I have. I'm going to go on stage and perform and do my job because that's what you want. But don't expect me to have the same kind of rapport with you that I would have with somebody I actually know. Totally. And I think that those lines have been blurred absolutely in contemporary societal stuff with social media and all of that, which is why it almost becomes more interesting that ABBA has taken to social media in recent times to foster those relationships going back full circle. Right. And I think it might be easier nowadays 
because they can project exactly the image that they want. Whereas on tour or something like that, you're kind of at the whim of the live setting, but you can orchestrate and you can prune and edit when you're doing social media. Sure, that's true. So having very tiny bits of conversation about the album so far, have you listened to Arrival itself in its entirety before this? Or is that you just know a lot of the hits from the album and it was kind of an interesting thing for you to want to talk about? You know, I, prior to today, Mm -hmm. had not listened to the album by itself straight through. I knew all of the songs. (laughs) Right. But I hadn't listened to it in the order of the album, just those songs. Right. And I think it was a very different experience to listen to just those 10 songs. It's definitely an album that feels incredibly intentional. Yes, I would agree with that. Edited. It is one of their shortest albums, which was definitely one of the reasons why I was like, yeah, let's do this one. (laughs) I think I tried to get you to do the one that just has every song on it. Oh, like a greatest hits one? no to that. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's just like straight up. I think it's called Thank You for the Music. And it's just straight up like 40 plus songs. (laughs) Uh, No, I didn't want to do that one. But this one comes in in like a really tight 36 minutes or something like that. If you include just the original songs that were on the album, and that's a really mm-hmm. tight album. That's short. But the songs themselves aren't short for right. pop songs. These songs are pretty often three or more minutes, which you don't see that often anymore. No, that's very unusual for a pop song. And one of the weirdest things about this album is that it seems like a lot of people think that Fernando is on this album. <laughs> And it's not at all. There was a deluxe version that did include it. And it was originally included in the Australian release of this album between Why Did It Have to Be Me and Tiger, which I think would have fundamentally changed the entire meaning of the album. Yeah, that's interesting. And Fernando itself is such a weird song to cover as well, (laughs) because it has it has a very multi-layered read to it. So specific. Specifically about war. Yeah, (laughs) right. But then it was used in Mamma Mia as a longing past relationship song. (laughs) Oh, it was used in Mamma Mia as Cher's big solo. Right. It was iconic. Yeah. Well, something that I thought was interesting that you talked about a lot is you continually talk about the singer as a protagonist yes. throughout the album. And I think that it's interesting to think about the fact that the men were the songwriters. And at the time that this album came out, both of the relationships were still going. Right. Agnetta and Bjorn were married. Benny and Frida were engaged. Right. So it was men writing music for their significant others, their counterparts to sing. And the women were not really involved in that process but they are painted as the protagonist and as the leads and all of that and I think that that asks some questions about what that story is wow that absolutely colors the whole thing in an entirely different way it opens up some doors where it's like who is the one speaking or when she's calling herself various talking about wanting money and like a simple relationship or whatever it is is that an actual I mean is that how women actually are speaking is right. that how the man is interpreting seeing women in their lives? Right. I think that that's kind of an interesting lens to see it through as well. Yeah, that makes this quote that I have from the Pitchfork review by Simon Goddard, which he rated the album pretty high. I think he gave it an 8.6. Wow. But he was talking about Dancing Queen and this multi-layered meaning of Dancing Queen. And I never really, like, I read the lyrics to Dancing Queen. I listened to it a number of times to prepare for the album. 
album. I have listened to it over the times of the years and mm-hmm. have heard it in Mamma Mia and all that kind of stuff. I've never read it as fully textured in the way that this reads. And then the fact that it wasn't even them that wrote it, I think, colors this even more. So let me read this quote about the complicated nature of Dancing Queen. So he says, its surface beauty and emotional depth is wholly dependent on the ear of its beholder. For some, it's an emancipatory cry of joy. For others, a ball from an abyss of sorrow. Perhaps this is the song of someone who wants to be Esmeralda, but knows they are Quasimodo, the harrowing dream of life outside as imagined by someone imprisoned indoors. The dancing queen could be an isolated young girl alone in her bedroom, too scared, too shy, almost certainly believing herself too hideous to step out into Friday night. Her one happiness, her unrealistic fantasy that she could find love amongst the beautiful people out on the dance floor. Wow. That's reading really far into the song, first of all. It is. (laughs) Interesting. But again, we have to think about the fact that this review is written from the perspective of a man. Reading Dancing Queen as almost a like song about self-deprecation in a way and fantasizing about being the popular one or something like that. Sure. That's interesting because I never read it that way. Right. I see it. I mean, obviously Dancing Queen is one of the most fun songs. The great karaoke song is a great song to play at the club when you're several hours into drinking. It's joyous. I think that it really, really portrays the male gaze. Okay. I mean, when you look at lines, it says straight up it says you're a teaser you turn them on but it's talking about a young woman just dancing and having a good time right i mean it's straight up talking about the fact that she's going out on the prowl it's talking about her almost predatorily looking for any man anyone could do right i read it more as a rejected man talking about the way that he sees women in a club or in a bar or whatever going out and enjoying themselves okay and i wonder if that i mean obviously that come from the fact that I'm a woman and I have different experiences. Right. But that's absolutely the perspective that I have. I've never thought that it was a self-deprecating situation at all. Right. And that kind of introduces an interesting conversation about the comparison between this song, which is the second from the beginning, Mm -hmm. and the second from the last song, Tiger, which, if memory serves me correctly, I equated to basically kind of a more aggressive version of a cougar. Right. Which then if this song is from the perspective of a man looking at a woman having fun and fantasizing or the male gaze or whatever, is this album then a turn against that perspective and almost becomes critical of it further through the album, culminating in Tiger being a very rude sentiment? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that's certainly one way that it can be read. Right. I would argue that... I mean, looking at these men, you obviously you can't know everything that's in their minds. But mm-hmm. a couple years after this, Benny left Frida for another woman. Right. They had all had multiple marriages, I believe. Frida had children by another man. Agneta was 24 years old when the band started and was having international success. I mean, she was getting love letters and all of that stuff. I right. can see 
it as being a little bit of a fragile male ego and fear of rejection and therefore turning that into a little bit of aggression or not necessarily nice things that are being said about women. Right. And I can see where that all would come from. Yeah. And the album really, if we read it in that vein, that the whole tragic figure of the protagonist becomes different because the relationship's good at the beginning and there's good stuff. But then as she ages or as she grows more in quotation marks, difficult or whatever, she becomes more independent. Her description becomes a lot worse over the course of the album, especially starting in Money, 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 where she's almost described as a gold digger. She's blatantly described as a gold digger. (laughs) Um, But yeah, not a super kind way of portraying it, Mm -hmm. portraying a woman at all, portraying anybody. And I mean, going into Mamma Mia, it's kind of interesting that that's one of the songs that they choose to use as a character exposition for Meryl Streep, because looking at it in any other context, I mean, the context of it is she's a gold digger. The context of it in Mamma Mia, you're looking at it and you're like, oh, she's been in a terrible situation and taking care of herself and she just wants some help and somebody to help take care of her for once. And I mean, the men in the band were executive producers on Mamma Mia. They helped create that storyline. But not the women? So, no. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. The women, Agnetta was living basically in solitude, almost like a hermit, driven there by her anxiety based on the band and wasn't in communication with any of them. Wow. Frida had had some personal tragedies in her life and lost several people very close to her and was, I believe at the time, living in Switzerland. Okay. After having moved to a bunch of different countries, but the men were off producing Mamma Mia. Actually, the red carpet premiere of the movie was the first time that all four members had been in public together Mm -hmm. since the band disbanded in the 80s which is crazy right yeah but you look at it and no that's a completely different story that they've put the song into and is that through them feeling guilt over the creation of that character that they've created or is it just did they even know that they were portraying a woman in such a negative light was it intentional or was it just sure not to get into massage and all of that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, was it just an internalized insecurity that was taken out that way? And I don't know that we have an answer to that. Absolutely. Yeah, this album is deceptively complex, for sure. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that's one of their big strengths. And it really comes down to, they've been described as this kind of glitzy, poppy band, just all style, no substance kind of thing. But listening Mm -hmm. to the album, it's so musically rich. There's so many different genres. There's so many different styles. Oh, they absolutely knew what they were doing musically. Yeah. Incredibly talented musicians. And something else that you talked about a lot about the contrast of light and dark, the poppy music, the tragic lyrics, all of that stuff also comes into play when you think about musically throughout the entire album. You've got the contrast between the two women singers. You've got the contrast of Frida's alto and Agnetta's soprano and the way that they play on each other and harmonize plays with that light and dark dark Mm -hmm. contrast straight up within the music in such a beautiful way. Yeah, there's another quote from Simon Goddard. This one, uh, this one a little bit more straightforward. (laughs) Okay. Where he says, at the center of their infinitely bright star is a throbbing black mass of pain. And then he says a really funny part of the same quote that I want to read as well. Says the pagan Swedes of old believed that the end of the world was a coming inevitability they called Ragnarok. Abba are the sweet echo of that same ancient stoic 
stoic pessimism. Ragnarok and roll. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. But yeah, they have that really beautiful mixture that is in a lot of music. There's a lot of really good music that sounds really happy and feels really sad. (laughs) Absolutely. I was trying to come up with something that was equated that was just such a the level of bubblegum pop. And I couldn't in my mind get there to what I was trying to do. But what I did come up with that made me think of it, which was right around the same time, is the Talking Heads song Psycho Killer. Okay, yeah. Which is just such an upbeat, fun, silly sounding song in a very similar way. You kept calling, you called this album Goofy. I mean, I think that the band feels a little goofy to me, but I'm I'm gaining more of an appreciation for it. I'm gaining more of an appreciation for it. (laughs) But similarly, Psycho Killer sounds very silly. It's like, it's funny, it's fun, but it's literally about a murderer. Sure. It's got that similar vibe. The lyrics, once you start actually listening, you're like, wait, what the hell? Right, yeah. (laughs) And I think that that's something very interesting that they do throughout this whole album. Yeah, so I am curious, now that we kind of covered the bass, is there any song in particular that you really connect with or you feel some sort of kinship or have some history with or anything in particular for this album i do very much love dancing queen okay well classic (laughs) i do it's a classic abba overall i have a personal history with the song super trooper which is kind of a silly little one but i used to work on cruise ships and we would have a every other week or so crew karaoke night and that's fun somehow it became a thing where every one of these karaoke nights by the end of the night a friend and I would sing Super Trooper as the final song and the woman who (laughs) coordinated the event would come up to us and be like we've got three more songs and then we're done so we're adding you to the list you gotta wrap it up and that would literally be how like the night was over after Haley and Julie sang Super Trooper that was it it was all over (laughs) and it was just such a fun thing and that went on for several months and it like was silly and by that time in the night everybody was drunk enough that like I mean I can't hit a note but nobody cares <laughs> at that point it has a special place in my heart because of that it was a good good time that's super fun interestingly though obviously Dancing Queen is the ubiquitous ABBA song it has almost a billion streams on Spotify which is a lot okay. I'm only a hundred million of those okay <laughs> Spotify wrapped top 0.01% of ABBA <laughs> The interesting thing about this album is that there really are no filler songs. There are no duds. And even the one that the band itself has stated is kind of a dud has more depth to it than even they claim. So there's a review by You Discover Music by Mark Elliott. It says, Arrival, the ABBA classic that scored a winning touchdown, which is a weird article (laughs) title. I don't know what that has to do with anything. But they're talking about Dum Dum Diddle, a song in the middle of the album. that a lot of people think is just kind of like it's one of their weaker ones generally but there's an interesting perspective that Mark Elliott portrays here that I actually agree with a lot where he says Dum Dum Diddle is light and frothy one of the breeds of nagging earworms that for years fed the band's reputation as peddlers of silly tinny pop that was to rob the Swedes of a fair critical assessment actually however at the song's heart is the joyful melancholy that underpins the best of ABBA's melodies the faintly masochistic cheer at the center of so much sadness the final dance as the world comes crashing down around you Hmm. which is a wonderful sentiment that describes a very large majority of their catalog (laughs) 
Yeah. You always find such good quotes. And people write such good quotes. <laughs> people get passionate <laughs> about music. And I think that's one of the really wonderful things about it is that people really, really love talking about music because it means something to whoever listens to it. Absolutely. One of the interesting things, because you said you couldn't figure out necessarily why you don't like this. Yeah. So much. And I just, it made me think about, I think that this album or just in general, ABBA is one of those bands that like, I really believe in the concept of art, just being able to be enjoyed for the sake of enjoyment. Mm -hmm. And whether that music or film or paintings, whatever, it doesn't necessarily always have to be super intellectual why you enjoy it. And for me, ABBA really embodies that where it it really does tend to fill people with joy, I think. Mm -hmm. And that can be enough sometimes. And it doesn't have to be enough. Right. I'm not saying anything negative about the fact that you don't enjoy it, but like sure. <laughs> at the base of it. I'm not shaming you or anything. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I might deserve it. They're one of the biggest bands of all time. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to, but it fills people with joy. It really does. Absolutely. Personally, there's no circumstances that I will get a better deep clean of my apartment in than blasting ABBA on repeat and just getting down and doing it. Yeah. And it can fill people with that. And I think that we need to allow ourselves for that to be enough within art. Absolutely. Do you have any final thoughts on the album before I read this final quote that I feel like sums up that idea? Not specifically on this album, no. Well, I wanted to wrap your idea there up with an interesting quote that I found from Happy Mag, which okay. is a magazine, um, by Manning <laughs> Patston. It's called Arrival, Why It Mattered. And he says, okay. unlike other evergreen 70s artists, I don't think ABBA's primary reason is their cultural impact, influence, or wild backstage antics. I believe it comes down to their core, writing and performing engaging, accessible, emotional, complex, simple, beautiful music. The group said it best themselves, without a song or dance, what are we? And I think nice. that perfectly in encapsulates that idea of this doesn't have to be something that is trying to be the most important thing ever created. In some ways, like you said, fun is enough. And I think I agree with that, especially for this album (laughs) and for this band. Love that. I accomplished my goal. (laughs) (laughs) I have absolutely gained so much more appreciation for this band and in part was how interesting their music is from a musical standpoint and also how deceptively complex yet still on the surface enjoyable and simple their music is and maybe someday I'll grow to like it and it'll be probably largely in part to you thank you (laughs) and I really (laughs) I really really appreciate you coming onto the podcast and talking with me again as always it's been an absolute blast anytime with all of that being said that concludes this week's episode of Throughline with Arrival by ABBA you can check us out on any social media at AJ Throughline or check us out at throughline.audiojudo.com. Give me your complaints. Give me your comments. Tell me what albums I should do next. Tell me what I got wrong about specific albums, even <laughs> though it's literary analysis. You can't really get it wrong, but whatever. <laughs> All of that, just tell me how to make the podcast better for you because we want this to keep going and we want to be able to cover more albums in the future and bring music to you that allows you to see new perspectives on things that you otherwise wouldn't have tried. That's really the goal here. And I hope that we did that with you today. I know I did it to myself today with this album, but until next time, that's all for Throughline today. And always remember, you don't have to be mean when you don't like something. True. Thanks so much for listening.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 